We're in the book of Acts, but we're going to be reading out of the letter of uh, St. Paul to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Moss, and I work with the college ministry here at Sunnybrook, uh, also known as The Table. And uh, I want to give you a little plug as we begin. Right after the service today, we have what's known as Table 101. Uh, which is just an opportunity for those of you who are students to learn a little bit about our ministry, uh, what it is and what we do, and, and more than that, to learn about this church and what it might look like to get connected into the church here. We'll have our, uh, our, our college staff there, but also the rest of the Sunnybrook staff will be there. Um, and, and so we'd love to have you come and meet us. It's just kind of a drop-in thing. So you can walk out these doors and then go down the hall on your right, and you'll see it right there. won't be able to miss it. And we would uh, we'd love to have you come just say hey for a few minutes and learn a little bit about our church. Uh, as Jim said, we're back in the book of Acts today, sort of. Uh, we're not going to be walking through a particular verse like we were before, but a, a particular text. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts as a whole and, and talking about one of the main themes in the book of Acts. Uh, many people would say the main theme in the book of Acts, uh, and, and that is the church. We're talking about the church and and its significance and our role in it. So, uh, not too long ago, 
Our, uh, our family was loaded up in our van after Wednesday night service here at Sunnybrook, and, and we were headed out of the parking lot there, and, and as we were kind of pulling up to the street, my oldest daughter, Ella, who's 10 years old and the wheels are always kind of turning in Ella's head, Ella asks this question from the back of the van. Uh, she asks, Dad, can a person love God without going to church? Love God, you should know, is, is Ella's, uh, that's kind of like her phrase for be a Christian. You love God uh, without going to church. And, and so she asked me this question, and you also need to know this, that for Ella, that's not just a hypothetical question. It's not just some kind of theoretical uh, discussion starter. She's talking and thinking about real people when she asks that question. You see, it just dawned on Ella a few years ago that not everyone believes what she believes. That not everyone, to use her words, loves God. Not everyone follows Jesus. And that kind of struck her as such an odd and, and strange thing. And so she's always curious about people, whether or not they love God. I probably get asked that question as much as anything from her. Dad, does so-and-so love God? Do our neighbors love God, Dad? Do those people, do they love God? She'll ask even about like artists that we're hearing sing on the radio or people we're hearing on TV. Dad, does Russell Westbrook love God? Gotten that question before? Sweetheart, I, I, I don't know, honestly. I mean, I've never heard him talk about Jesus, so I don't think so, but I don't know. I don't know him. Dad, does Mike Gundy love God? And again, sweetheart, I'm sorry, I don't know Mike Gundy, so I can't answer that question. I'm not really sure. Dad, does Lincoln Riley love God? Absolutely not. No, he does not. <laughs> I, I kid. I, I don't think she's ever even heard of Lincoln Riley, so that, that did not actually happen. Uh, um, but she asked this question all the time. Um, and, and in fact, she's actually began to even ask some of her friends at school whether or not they love God. And, and most say yes, a few say no. But those who say yes, the next question that often comes is, where do you go to church? So she'll hear some say Life Church or Eagle Heights or Countryside. But there have been a handful who have said to Ella, no, our family, we love Jesus. We love God. We pray together and, and we talk about Jesus and those things. But we don't go to church. And that kind of struck Ella as odd, and, and so she's been thinking about that and wondering, is that a thing? Can you love God without being a part of church? Or put this way, can you be a Christian without being involved in church? I don't know if you've ever asked that question before, wondered about it. I don't think people ask it as often as maybe it was asked 30 or 40 years ago, but Chances are, this is just my guess, if you have asked that question, that like Ella, that's not just hypothetical for you. That's not just academic, that when you ask that question, you've got names in mind, you've got faces in mind, loved ones, family or friends that will identify as Christian, that, that live in very Christian ways, that they pray, they talk to you about Jesus and what they're reading in the Bible, and, and they do all of these things, and yet they're not a part of a church anywhere. Maybe because they've had a really rough experience in a church before. They've been hurt. Maybe they just don't 
get the point of it. They don't see the point of going. Maybe it, it just seems frustrating, not worth the time. Maybe the person you're thinking of right now is you. You're here this morning. You're sitting in here. And you get up and you come, but the truth is that's been a really hard thing for you to do for a long time, to want to be at church. I recognize that when we ask this question, we're talking not just about ideas, we're talking about people. This isn't just an academic thing to try and solve and figure out a debate to be had, and so I do not want to treat it that way this morning. I want to be sensitive about the fact that there's real people here, but I want to ask you to bear with me for just a little bit, that, that if you feel your back bowing up a little bit, you feel your defenses going up, that you would hang with me, that you wouldn't just tune me out, that you wouldn't just check out, that you would walk alongside me as we work through this question this morning through the book of Acts. I want to ask this question. I want to try to answer it through two different stories. One's from the book of Acts and one is not. The first one comes in one of the most important chapters in the book of Acts, one of the most pivotal ones, Acts chapter 9. It's the story of the conversion of Saul. And, and if you've been following along with us here uh, in our sermon series, or if you've ever read through the book of Acts, I'm sure you remember this one. Saul is this young, up-and-coming Pharisee um, in Jerusalem, and, and he is well-known, and he's even more well-known for being someone who hates the church, who's making it his life's goal to stamp out this new heretical movement that sprung up in Judaism. And, and he's, he's doing a fairly good job of it. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, that Saul was ravaging the church, traveling from home to home, finding believers anywhere he could, and then hauling them off to prison. And not just home to home, but town to town. And one day he decides to go to Damascus because he hears that the church has taken root there and he's going to uproot it. And so he's making his way on the road to Damascus when all of a sudden this bright light shines and he's confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And when Jesus confronts him, he confronts him about persecuting the church, but the phrasing that he uses to do that is curious, maybe a little bit unexpected. This is what it says in Acts 9. Verses 3 and 4. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting my people? Not, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus doubles down on this idea in the very next verse. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you need to know that at the time that this takes place, Jesus has not walked on the earth for some three to five years. He ascended to heaven several years ago. It's likely that Saul, though he may have heard him teach from time to time in Jerusalem, it's likely that Saul's never even met the man Jesus face to face. So how can Jesus be saying to him, it must sound strange, why are you persecuting me? I don't even know you. And yet the message to me seems fairly clear. That is that Jesus and his church are so deeply connected that what you do to the church, Saul, you do to me. They're so tightly woven up that, that when you strike the church, 
Jesus feels the sting, so to speak. This is the only time that a suggestion like this is made in the book of Acts. We know that Acts is the story of the church. The story of its birth and the story of its uh, growth and the story of its work, its mission to go out and bring the gospel to the world. And yet, when we come to the start of the book of Acts, the introduction, Luke describes that in an interesting way. Go to Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. There he says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, and and what he means by that, he's describing his gospel, the gospel of Luke. In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Did you catch that? In my first book, Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do before he ascended to heaven. And the implication there is, now I'm going to tell you the rest of what Jesus does. Now I'm going to tell you about his continued work, now that he's ascended to heaven. So, wait a second. Is Acts the story of the church's work, or is Acts the story of Jesus' work? And Luke's answer to that question would be, yes. But those two things, the work of the church and the work of Jesus, they are the same Because the work of what the church is doing is what Jesus is doing. It's not that they're the same entity, Jesus and the church. It's that they're wrapped up together. It's almost as if Jesus is the head and the church is his body, which is exactly what the New Testament teaches time and time again in verses like Jim just read to us from Ephesians 4. And one chapter later in Ephesians 5 when it says this, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Or Colossians 1 where it says, and he is the head of the body. The church, for just as the body is one and has many members, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. Time and time again, this truth is attested to that the church is the body of Christ, connected to him for life, used by him to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Story number two. This one's not from the Bible. This gentleman back at my home church, Boulevard Christian Church in Muskogee, Oklahoma, this kind older gentleman by the name of Larry. And Larry, for as far back as I could remember as a kid, had always been the unofficial greeter at Boulevard. Like, I don't think a decision was ever made. I don't know if anybody ever asked him. It just happened. Larry was always like the first one to the building on Sunday morning. And so you could know that whenever you showed up to church on that morning, that Larry would be there opening the doors and ready to greet you with a warm smile and a handshake. And it worked great because Larry had a very warm personality. He was very kind and welcoming. He was great at what he did, except for this one thing. Larry's handshakes were kind of weird. There's something just a little bit off about it, and you knew it. Every time you shook his hand, you could feel it. You may not know what it was, but there was something a little bit off. And the reason why is because on Larry's right hand, his shaking hand, he was missing almost all of his middle finger and part of his ring finger. The story goes, at least as it's been told to me and as I remember, that one day Larry was out uh, splitting firewood with his sons, 
and that they had an actual like log splitter out there helping them to do the job. And I don't know exactly how it went down. I think he was reaching to adjust a log there or something, and one of his sons, John, wasn't paying attention, and he fired off the machine there as Larry's hand was in the way, and it took both of those fingers clean off. So every time you'd shake Larry's hand, you could like feel it. So something's not all here, which wasn't a big deal for those of us who knew him and knew the story, but for like new people coming in, shaking their hands, it was just kind of an interesting experience there. Listen, I, I tell you that not to make light of Larry's loss, though I promise you I don't think he would mind. I think he laughs about it as well. I tell you that to pose to you sort of a silly philosophical question taking you back to that moment there in the yard when Larry's fingers both get taken off, and there they are sitting there on the lawn. Question for you. Do those fingers still belong to Larry? Are those still his fingers? Is that a part of Larry's body in that moment? I think the answer to that question is, yeah, I think, but maybe the better question is this, is that healthy? Is that natural for those fingers to lay there severed from the body? Can those fingers ever do what they were designed to do when they're not connected to the body? How long can they even survive like that? Listen, we believe, along with the rest of the church throughout history, along with what everything that the Bible teaches, that there is nothing that you do to save yourself. There is nothing you do to earn your way into God's favor, to be, to make yourself a Christian. No, you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his death, dying in your place for your sins. So that means that you're not saved by your church attendance. You're not saved by being a member somewhere. You're not saved by your tithes. You're not saved by the amount of hours you logged serving in the nursery. No, you are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ. But when Jesus saved you, he did not merely save you into a personal relationship with him. No, he adopted you into a family, his family. He made you a part of his body. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that when we were baptized into Christ, we were actually baptized into his church. So that means that whether you know it or not, whether Gabriella realized it or not, just a few minutes ago, when she went down into the water and came back up, she came back up a member of the church. That whether you wanted to or not, you became, the moment you became a Christian, you became a part of the church. Which leads us to this second question. What does that mean then, practically? Because see, there's a lot of people who would agree with everything that I just told you. Yes, I am a Christian. And yes, to be a Christian makes me a part of the church. I am a part of the capital C church, the worldwide universal church. And that's the church that matters. That's the church that the Bible is talking about. So then why does it matter whether or not I'm a part of a local church? Why does it matter whether or not I'm sitting in a pew on Sunday morning? What difference does it make whether I have to place my formal membership into some local church somewhere? I'm part of the capital C church. And that's where Acts becomes really helpful. 
Because what Acts does for us is it, it gives us, by example, through stories, it shows us what the early Christians did when they became a part of the capital C church. When they gave their lives to Jesus, when they joined the worldwide church, what did that actually mean for their day-to-day living? The best example, maybe, of this happens in Acts chapter 2, which is where many people regard to be kind of the birth of the church itself. It's this place where the 120 believers are gathered together in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes and falls on them, and in this moment, they begin to speak in tongues, and they go out into the streets and into the temple courts, and they begin to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Peter stands up, and he delivers this sermon saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and when he delivers this sermon, the people are cut to the heart, and they ask what to do, and he says, repent and be baptized, and so all these people decide to do it on that day. This is what it says in Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in this moment, you've got this little bitty group of people, and all of a sudden, that explodes when these 3,000 people join in, and now something's actually happening. These people have all come in to join the church, and what happens when they do that? When they inevitably go to the apostles and they go, okay, so what's next? We're baptized, we're Christians. What would the apostles say to them? Oh, nothing. Hey, good news, you're a part of the capital C church now. Congratulations. All you need to do, just work on your personal relationship with Jesus. Make sure you're having your quiet time, doing some prayers, those kinds of things. Maybe talk about it with your family. That's not what they say. That's not what they do. Look at the very next verse in that story, Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What we see is that immediately they begin to gather together in fellowship with one another. They begin to sit under the apostles' teaching as the scriptures are expounded to them on a regular basis. They begin to pray with one another. They begin to break bread and share the Lord's Supper with one another on a regular basis. But that's not all they do. Look at the verses after this, 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved you see as soon as people in the early uh, in the first century when they become a part of the universal church they immediately begin investing in the local church church. They begin to live that out in actual fellowship and community. And we see that they are caring for one another's needs, sharing their stuff to the point that they're like selling possessions and using the money to give it to those who are in need. Not because this was mandated, not because this was the rule, but because in the first century, when so many people there were living at or below the poverty line, there are a whole lot of needs. And if someone has a need and I've got extra, I'm going to help them out in this church. And so they're sharing their stuff together. We see a very similar picture unfold in Acts chapter 4, if you want to go there. 
Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see, it says at the beginning, the full number of believers. All of them were joined together of one heart and one soul. There was this unity and this love that was manifested in the sharing of their possessions, in the caring for one another's needs. And this pattern that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 of fellowship, of breaking of bread, of submitting to leaders, of caring for one another's needs, this pattern plays out over and over again in the book of Acts. Like in Acts chapter 6, when the church there in Jerusalem comes together as one body to make a decision about how they can care for the needy widows that are a part of their church. Or in Acts chapter uh, 13, when we see the elders and the leaders in Antioch coming together and they're fasting and they're praying, and in response to the Holy Spirit, they send out Paul and Barnabas to go do missions work throughout the rest of the world. Or in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are traveling through Asia Minor, and they don't just make converts, they don't just make believers, they start churches, and then they appoint elders over those churches. Or in Acts 15, when the Jerusalem leaders come together and they make a decision for the body, and the rest of the body falls into submission and obedience to that. Or in Acts 20, when we see the church in Troas gathering on the first day of the week to break bread, or at the end of chapter 20, when we see Paul with the elders of Ephesus charging them to take care of the flock that God has entrusted to them. You see, in Acts, the Christian life is church life. To live out your Christian life is to live it out in community in the book of Acts. And when we move out beyond the book of Acts, we see that this is not just exemplified for us, this is commanded of us. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we are commanded as believers to use our gifts and our resources for the building up of the body. We are commanded to come together and to love one another and to serve one another, to forgive one another. I'm commanded to submit to my leaders. I'm commanded to confront my brothers and sisters when they're in sin. I'm commanded to help bear their burdens over and over again. This language is described. This is what we do if we are Christians. So here's the point where you're supposed to be asking, why are you telling us all this, Drew? We're here, aren't we? I mean, we're sitting here. We came to church. Why are you telling us all of this stuff? Like, is this not the definition of preaching to the choir? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be going and, and telling all the people who aren't in church on Sunday that they need to be here? But it's true. Many of you in here are here faithfully every Sunday. And not just that, you are engaged in community here at this church in Sunday schools or in life groups or in relationships outside of this building. You're serving in the church in many ways. For that, I am so grateful. So then why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because I know that in this room today, there are a bunch of college students, many of whom have just stepped away from their home and from their home church for the very first time. And in the next month or two, 
you're going to be making this decision whether or not church is your thing or whether or not that was just your parents' thing and you were along for the ride. I'm telling you this because on the flip side, there are parents in this room who just sent their kids away to college for the first time. And inevitably, we see it every year. I'm not sure why, but inevitably, we see parents who have been engaged in the body, invested in the life of the church, serving in small groups and going on trips and doing all these things for 18, 20 years. And then for whatever reason, when their students go away to college, I don't think it's an intentional decision. Something just happens where they slowly begin to disengage from the community here in the church. I'm telling you this because there are parents in this room with kids my kids' age and older, and you know all too well as this school year gets going what's about to happen. How busy life gets as every single member in your family has a thousand different activities to get them to, and you start rushing around everywhere, and it gets so hard to keep it all together, and it's so easy sometimes to go, we just need a break, and it feels like the only time we ever could get that would be Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. I'm telling you this because I know that there are high school students in this church who no matter how long they've been coming feel like they just don't fit with the youth group here. They hate coming here. The only reason they come is because their parents drag them every week. I'm telling you this because I know that there are people sitting in this room right now who have been deeply hurt by the church, maybe hurt by someone else sitting in this room, and it's hard for you to get up and want to be here and face people. Or maybe you've been here for years, and it doesn't matter how long you're here, it just feels like you can't get plugged in here, like you can't get connected, and you look around everywhere, and it looks like it's so easy for everyone else, and everyone else seems to be getting along so well, so then why can't I be in on that? I'm telling you this to plead with you all to hang in there. I'm pleading with you college students that you would not be nonchalant in your attitude towards the body of Christ over the next four to six years, that you would not just pop in and out on a Sunday morning anytime it's convenient, on, on a day when you hadn't stayed up too late the night before or you don't have a big project coming the next day, that you wouldn't be the kind of students that just hop around from church to church each Sunday depending on where your friends are, that you would be intentional in establishing roots in a family here in Stillwater, whether that be Sunnybrook or another place. I'm pleading with you parents to set an example to your children of what it looks like to prioritize Christ's people in the middle of a very busy life. To give them a gift, this gift of a family that is bigger than your own. Of a family that will go with your kids long after they leave your home. I'm pleading with you, those of you who've been hurt deeply by the church, those of you who feel like you just cannot connect here, I'm pleading with you. Don't give up. Don't stop. Cling to the church. It's worth it. It's worth holding on to. And the truth of the matter is, for every one of you in here, your brothers and your sisters, we need you here. Your brothers and your sisters, they need you 
to come and use your gifts and use your talents and use your resources to serve here. They need you to encourage them. They need you to pray with them. They need you to love their kids back in the nursery or in kids' church. They need you to call them to holiness when they begin to stray away from those things. They need you to point them to Jesus when times are good and when times are bad. And the truth is you need them as well. That's why God gave you his church. Some of you may have noticed that I never fully answered that first question that I asked at the beginning. Can you be a Christian without being involved in the church? It's partly because of something that happened to me earlier this week, this Tuesday morning. Jim Johnson happened to me this Tuesday morning. I I told the first service, it seems like Jim Johnson happens to me a lot. But I'm sitting in there, I had just shared all of this stuff on Monday in our staff meeting, and I told them about where I was going, kind of the direction of this sermon. I had actually posed this question, can you be a Christian without being involved in the church? I, I posed that question to them, and we had a good discussion about that and talked about it for a while. And so after it's done, I start plugging away, and I, I start feeling good about this. I know the direction I'm going. I'm, I'm getting stuff going, and on Tuesday morning, I send out my notes to Kim to get them printed up in the bulletin. It's all good to go. And then Jim Johnson and walks into Scott and I's office. And I believe the first words out of his mouth were, hey, I want to tell you something, and I hope this doesn't wreck your week. Translation, I'm about to wreck your week. He says to me, I've been thinking about that question that you posed, the question you're going to try to answer on Sunday, and I'm not sure if that's real wise. Not sure if that's a great idea to try and do that. It's not that the question he said, it's not that the question is bad, it's not that the question's not worth talking about, it's just that in a room this size with this many people, that gets complicated. It's nuanced because there are so many different experiences, so many people with so so many different pasts in church. And the moment you begin to ask this question, everybody's mind begins to go down a hundred different rabbit trails of what about this situation or what about this person or what about my friend or what about my thing and and those kinds of things. And it just leads people all over the place. And so he said to me, I'm not telling you you can't do it. not telling you you shouldn't. I'm just wanted to share that it may not be the best idea. And then he went out to a lunch appointment. I was like, "What, what in the world is that? Like, I'm just sitting there, and Jim walks in, hey, I know you've been working hard on your sermon. Just thought I'd blow that up real quick before I go to lunch, right? And he steps out, and I remember being really agitated and going, man, what am I supposed to, I've got all this stuff. How am I supposed to switch this around? How am I supposed to change it? As you obviously know, I continued to go with that question. It's in your bulletin, partly because I had already sent it into the bulletin, and I didn't feel like taking white out to 1,500 bulletins today. But I will say that that conversation that Jim had with me stuck with me all week. I could not stop thinking about it. I I know that this morning there will be some 1,100, 1,200 people in this building today, which means that there are some 1,100, 1,200 different stories about church, 1,100, 1,200 different experiences of what church is. And I know that there are people in our fellowship because of like physical health issues cannot be a part of this church as much as they want to cannot be here as often as they'd like 
that there are people in our fellowship who, because of emotional or mental health issues, cannot be invested in this community in the way that they might like to be. That there are people um, who have been so hurt, maybe even experienced trauma at the hands of church members in a way that makes it very difficult for them to be able to be involved. I know that there are a lot of difficulties associated with this. And the last thing I want to do is just heap more guilt on top of people like that. As a matter of fact, if, if that's what you come away with from this message is that you better be at church every Sunday and every time you miss, you better feel really bad about it, then I've failed. Because my goal in all of this, my heart in all of this is not to give you something else to feel bad about. My goal, my heart, is to help you see church for what it is. A gift to you. A family that God has given you to walk alongside of you, to strengthen you, encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Yes, church can be complicated and it can be messy. Family often is. And I know, for those of you, let me just speak, for those of you in here who feel like you're the only ones, that it just feels like you can't get established, like you can't get connected, like you can't develop deep relationships, let me just tell you, the good and the bad news is you're not the only one. There are a lot of people here who struggle with that. The church is not perfect. Sunnybrook is not perfect. We're not everything we're supposed to be. We're working to grow in that, and we do that together. But my hope is that for all of its flaws today, you might be able to see the church as God sees it. There's this one last verse from Acts that I want to read to you. I referenced it a little bit ago. It comes at the end of Acts chapter 20, Acts 20, verses 28. It's when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. And this is what he says to them in that moment. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Which he obtained with his own blood. Listen, the church can be trying sometimes. It can be tough. There are going to be seasons in your life when you just don't feel like coming, when it, it doesn't seem to be working for you, when it doesn't seem to, to, to be connecting to you. There will be seasons where you're going to think that it's just exhausting to get up and go and try and invest myself in people again, to try and be vulnerable to people who might reject me or might shut me out and all of those things. I get all of that, but I want you to know this, brothers and sisters, the Jesus that you love loves his church so much so that he was willing to spill his own blood to bring it into existence so much so that he was willing to lay down his own life to make a bunch of ordinary broken messed up sinful people into this spotless beautiful bride of his and for whatever reason, he chooses to use that church to accomplish his purposes in the world, helping you to grow up, reaching lost people, caring for those who are needy in the world. And so we've told our students before at the table, recognize this, that the most important institution on the face of the planet at any point in history 
was not the Roman Empire that was in charge of everything when Luke wrote the book of Acts. It was not Alexander's great Greek civilization that he set up 100 or 200 years earlier. Most important, amazing group of people on the face of the planet is not the United Nations, it's not the United States of America or the European Union. No, the most important group of people on the planet at any point in history gathers every week under acacia trees in Africa. Huddles together secretly uh, in basements in China each week. Gathers together around potlucks in dingy fellowship halls somewhere in the Midwest. The most important group of people on the face of the planet sits in this room right now, not because there's anything beautiful or amazing or significant about any of you, but simply because you belong to him. Because the church is his, because it is Jesus' bride, because it is his body, because it is his temple, because it is his people. So can I be a Christian without being involved in church? Maybe. But if all that's true, why would I want to be?